Learn to love eating nutritiously always. Join Lana in the fight against type 2 diabetes. Visit lanafood.life. Welcome back to Don't Eat Yourself to Death with Shalotta Carter and uh, Rinaldi Jacobs and our very special guest, Dr. Brian Batch, who is an endocrinologist, and she's really giving us some great information about the effects of diabetes. And Dr. Batch, we were getting into a conversation about diabetes and kidney failure. We were really concerned about why does that seem to be a natural progression if you've got diabetes? We see so many uh, dialysis clinics in our communities and we see you know just people having you know kidney failure when they when they've contracted or been diagnosed with with diabetes is it is it the lifestyle of diabetes itself is it the pharmaceuticals we're taking what can we glean from that situation this is such an excellent question and you know as doctors we get focused very often on you know the things that we're interested in like blood pressure and what your actual blood sugars are and other things. But what patients are focused on is how can I prevent dialysis? How can I prevent amputation? How can I prevent heart attack stroke? The patient-centered outcomes that really matter to people every single day and blindness, I'll put in there. Kidney disease is usually, in most diabetes patients, what we call multifactorial. So their diabetes can be the big driver of that. And high blood sugars set up an inflammatory process that affects the glomeruli and parts of the kidney that help with filtering, okay? So blood sugars and high blood sugars alone are a big part of progression of, of diabetes, which is why we work so hard to try to get patients to have better blood sugar control because high blood sugars set up this inflammatory process that affects the kidney. But the other thing that we see very often, almost go hand in hand with every patient, is high blood pressure. And uncontrolled blood pressure, so hypertension, we call it, the scientific name for it, can also have extremely significant and negative effects on the kidney, on those, again, those smaller parts of the kidney, the smaller blood vessels in the kidney, which help with filtration. So you have high blood sugars, with blood pressure that's uncontrolled, but also you have then high cholesterol that comes in as well. And so those three things just set up a situation where the kidney starts to fail over time. And sometimes it's a slow process for some people. It can be decades. For some people, it's a very, very quick process and they go from having you know, abnormal kidney disease to basically going to dialysis in the course of a very short period of time. Um, the other thing that we are learning more and more about is that obesity, so being obese or overweight, also fuels this inflammatory process and these inflammatory mediators that then go and affect the kidney directly. So this that, that whole entire situation, high blood sugars, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and obesity or overweight all affect the kidney directly. And the one thing that is not recognized by patients is that catching your diabetes early on, 
right? So screening for diabetes and recognizing you have diabetes early on can actually prevent this type of progression to kidney disease. And so often what we see in our community, in the Black community, is patients are getting diagnosed with diabetes late. They're not coming in and their A1C is, you know, 6.7. They're coming in and their hemoglobin A1C is 14 and their blood sugars at presentation were 900 or 1,000. And so when you see patients in that situation, they've had high blood sugars for a long time, a long time. And that time frame, during that time frame, their kidneys been suffering, their eyes have been suffering, a heart has been suffering. This inflammatory process that's set up has essentially been allowed to run amok for many, many months and sometimes even years. And so recognizing early on what you need to do to screen or whether you're at risk, and sometimes that's family history, but being overweight and aging um, is enough to put up um, some risk factors to you know, encourage your doctor to screen. But those things I think are why um, we see kidney disease so frequently. And the reason why it affects the black community, again, sometimes is this delay in diagnosis, but there are also things that we don't understand about diabetes still that are being researched and followed with regard to the worsening, kind of what we see as, as the elevated risk and elevated prevalence of kidney disease in the black community. But hypertension is one of those things that drives it. So uncontrolled blood pressure, for sure. Is there a correlation between pancreatic cancer and diabetes as well, too? Mm -hmm. Pancreatic Mm -hmm. cancer is one of those they call unlucky uh, diseases because you don't know you have it until it's, you know, too late. That's right. That's right. But is there a correlation between uh, diabetes and pancreatic cancer? There um, is a correlation. And so sometimes what, what will happen is people will get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer because they come in with uncontrolled diabetes mm-hmm. and, and their blood sugars are elevated and no one really kind of clearly knows why. And another thing that we see occasionally is patients that have diabetes and it's been well controlled and all of a sudden it just takes off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you're on metformin or some other medication and you're doing fine. And then all of a sudden you rapidly progress to needing insulin. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is a correlation, but we also see patients with pancreatic cancer that don't have diabetes as well. Okay. The pancreas is an interesting organ. It's long. It's kind of like a a long rectangle with a tail and, or it's shaped like a long rectangle with a tail. And there's the head of the pancreas and there's the tail of the pancreas and different parts of the pancreas make insulin but there are other parts of the pancreas that make digestive enzymes, what we need to basically digest our food. And so depending on where your cancer is, is what is affected first. And clearly the treatment for pancreatic cancer, you know, affects the entire pancreas because typically it's surgery for most people. And so then that will create diabetes if you don't already have diabetes and will lead to diabetes. So, yeah. Dr. Batch, obviously certain communities suffer more uh, native indigenous people African-Americans, right. Black and Brown people have a greater suffrage in, in dealing with diabetes, as you say, first of yep. all, getting diagnosed early enough. And then there's that great evil, COVID-19. Oh, there yeah. is in, in our communities a, a natural, based upon history, uh, apprehension to a certain extent of the medical community. And of course, we, we saw this with the vaccine hesitation. And we know that yep. diabetes is one of the main markers that the COVID uh, virus looks for 
uh, yeah. those vulnerable populations. So how can we get past that using the technology like Lena and also educate people in, in all communities about getting checked early for some of the early markers uh, before you get diabetes or, or some of these other diseases? Yeah, no, it's, it's an excellent question. So COVID-19 has just exposed so many um, disparities with regard to health um, and with regard to wellness and access. And one of the things that we know after looking at patients who present to the hospital and typically do worse with COVID is that along with diabetes is obesity. Greater than 80% of African-American women in this country are overweight or obese. And so really focusing on diet and weight loss and physical activity can help reduce risk, not just for development of diabetes, but can help improve glycemic control and can also reduce your risk in, with regard to COVID, okay? So I think using technologies like Lena to help people to make better choices with regard to food, have a better awareness of foods that they're eating that can affect blood sugars, all of that is actually gonna to lead to better health because people are gonna lose weight and people are gonna eat healthier and they're gonna have less risk. Um, and so I think that really focusing on you know, lifestyle change is at the, at the, at the core of this. Shalada, you had some questions about preventive medicine. Actually, yeah, I wanted to start with preventative medicine, but I wanted to start with the amount of money that we spent on type two diabetes healthcare costs. In 2017-2018, we spent, the U.S. alone, spent over $270 billion in type 2 diabetes healthcare costs. And I'm wondering if we utilize more preventative medicine approaches in our healthcare system, if we could drive that number down, if we had a better education, if we would allow our patients to come in on a yearly or, or, or six-month basis opposed to waiting until, you know, their diabetes is out of control or they're losing their, you know, their sight or losing a limb. What, what do you think about preventative medicine, Dr. Batch? And, and, you know, how could we do better? I know the Canadian system is that way. You know, what about the U.S. system on the preventative medicine side? Yeah, I, I think that one of the most challenging aspects of my job every day is knowing and acknowledging that diabetes is preventable. Now, for there are some patients, and we talked about this earlier, who have an autoimmune background to their diabetes, but for the most part, it's driven so much by obesity, and obesity is a background. And even in the early stages of obesity, when patients' blood sugars are starting to creep up a little bit, we can catch them in the pre-diabetes range by doing simple tests like A1C that can prevent them from moving on to diabetes. And so I, you know, really try to encourage primary care doctors when I do in-services, when people come and ask me to speak, then a lot of times they'll say, oh, can you come and speak about the medications? I always say, I'll, I'm happy to speak about the medications, but I really want to talk about prevention. Because by the time patients get to me, they're far gone. They're beyond the point where I can be the most helpful to them. They typically are going to require multiple medications for therapy, which is going to cause them to gain weight, 
and there's a risk of hypoglycemia. So preventing people from even getting to diabetes is of paramount importance. And again, there are simple screening tests we can do, you know, to, to discover diabetes early. You know, one of the threads of all of our discussions about diabetes, that word obesity keeps coming up over and over and over again. And I'm wondering if it's like the Supreme Court justice said about pornography, you know it when you see it. But I think with obesity, we don't necessarily know it when we see it. So how does that fit for different body sizes, different cultural differences? How does obesity, you know, some people we may think are not obese are, and, and perhaps some that we think are obese, perhaps are not. So what are some of the, is it the body mass index? Is What are some of the things that help us to define the obesity situation that can get us into trouble with diabetes? Right. So that's a great question. I think when you think about uh, obesity, really what we're referring to in this country is body mass index, which essentially is a way of looking at people's weight for their height. So it's a way to compare someone like me, I'm 5'3", to someone who might be a woman who is a different build who might be 5'8". Okay, someone who's 5'8 should not weigh the same as I do. So it's kind of a way of normalizing. But what we've recognized over time is that BMI is not a good measure for every type of race and ethnic group. Um, Asian populations, for example, their BMI is typically, um, their, their risk for obesity, their risk for diabetes and the measure of obesity is actually lower. So it's at a lower BMI. Um, we also recognize that for black populations, BMI doesn't always correlate with health. So you'll see patients who have a BMI of 30 and they don't have diabetes and they don't have high blood pressure and they don't have heart disease. And so you think to yourself, well, what are the goals, right? How do we normalize the goals? How do we figure out what that person should be doing? Do they really need to lose weight? So BMI is a really complicated measure. Um, what I tell people is to think about themselves in context. So it's not just about your weight, it's also about your numbers. So knowing your A1C, knowing your cholesterol, knowing your family history and your personal history is really important. We're looking at COVID and how we've sort of had to weave into telemedicine. Has that been a blessing or a curse for, uh, for, for the diabetic sufferers? So has it been better that, you know, you can reach your doctor by phone or email or, or Zoom? Has it been a blessing or a curse? Or what, what have you seen over the last year? Yeah, yeah. This is something I've been thinking so much about. I spend a lot of my time thinking about this because in some ways, access is better but not for everyone. For those individuals who don't have access to the internet, that don't have access to a phone that has unlimited data, their access really hasn't improved. In fact, I think most hospital systems have really pushed video visits and those are patients who might benefit from telephone. So we've done a good job with trying to increase access. We have not done a good job of making sure that access has been equitably increased amongst every population, okay? The second thing is that for my patients who are established, who I know well, and if they have access to data, if they can send me their blood sugars, 
then I can do a really good job with virtual care, actually. It's patients who I don't know as well, where I haven't established that personal relationship. It's hard to connect over phone or sometimes even video, um, where I feel that that personal touch and interaction is missing, which helps create a team bond around doing better in terms of diabetes. And also those are patients that typically don't have access to technology. And so I have a lack of understanding, usually a lack of data around how their blood sugar is doing, what their trends are, potentially what they're eating. And so then you can be in a little bit of a data desert, Mm -hmm. which makes it more difficult to manage diabetes actually. So, you know, if it were the best of worlds and everyone had unlimited access to internet, knew how to use technology, had the technology that was required, um, then video visits would be, I think, an equitable way of delivering care to everyone. But that's not the reality in this country. Given the reality of of that, how important, I need my teenage grandkids to program the remote. So, (laughs) uh, but, but, but how important is it for family, especially older folks who don't may not be as familiar with the technology, yeah. talk a little bit about the inclusiveness of family members helping with things like you can't eat that, no, put that down, you know you can't have that, you know, mm-hmm. plus all those things because in, in many cases, you know, we're all doing different prepared foods and, and things like that, Char, and you know, you and I are always exchanging recipes, but but talk about the importance of the connectiveness of having family around you and how that can play an important role in using programs like Lena and telemedicine. Yeah. Family is, as everything. And I've really, um, I've always appreciated when family comes to appointments and when they're involved, but especially with technology where someone's not as facile, it's really important. Um, you know, we can do video visits that are groups where we have children. I have patients who have their kids from across the country dial in and there are younger kids who come, um, their spouses who can't be there physically or in person. So that's been huge and actually really incredibly helpful. But you're right. We need to have, um, again, the team. It needs to be the village and the team helping. And technology should not not be used because someone isn't you know, experienced in using it. We need to be able to bring other people into the fold that can help people um, use the technology that has advanced diabetes care so much. I'm gonna ask one more techie question. <laughs> and that's around CGMs. So I wear CGMs. I know that there are different ones for different types. Yep. There is a new uh, device coming out, uh, a company uh, partnered with Apple and they're using the Apple Watch to actually mm-hmm. give the blood pressure, blood sugar, which we're really excited about because once yeah. into eye health, we get you know we get to, to get it into our system immediately. Yeah. Do you have pa- patients that use it? Are they anticipating it? Can you get them to use it? What's what's been the ad- adaptation of those types of devices in managing diabetes? Yeah. So people that are listening, CGMs are continuous glucose monitors, and they essentially measure blood sugar in what's called the interstitial fluid. So the fluid between the fat cells. So you can wear a sensor on your body. It measures your blood sugar every five minutes, and then it can transmit that data to your phone or to a reader or another device. And they're incredible devices. 
we have seen a tremendous uptake of the use of these devices in our patient population. We've been delighted as endocrinologists to have the data, to mm -hmm. have access to not just blood sugars when people prick their finger, but blood sugars during the entire day. And actually we learn a lot about those trends. Mm -hmm. We learn a tremendous about blood sugars overnight, mm -hmm. which we typically didn't have access to. And I'll tell you, patients learn a lot about what they eat and how it affects their blood sugars. And they've, it's been an incredible educational tool. A strategy that I use, I pull up the data with my patients in the room and I say, hey, <laughs> what'd you eat? What'd you eat after dinner last night? You know, and then we, and it's been really okay. instrumental. And I've seen people drop their A1C by two and three and 4% with just that information. They're not for everyone. You know, everyone doesn't want to have to wear a device and, and they're not for people who don't need to check their blood sugars very frequently. So if you're on metformin once a day, you may not need a continuous glucose monitor unless you really need to understand your trends. And for some people that's true, but if you're doing well and you have a good handle on your diet and you're exercising like you need to, then it's probably overkill to use this kind of device. But yeah, they've been hugely useful um, for patients and providers. And it's a really great way I find to really partner with patients mm -hmm. around what's actually happening in real time. Um, so yeah, we've been, we've been excited about the development. So let's, let's talk a little bit about targeted eating and targeted access to food. Now, of course, COVID has changed the whole world. You can order your stuff from Walmart, but that doesn't mean yeah. you, know, you know what to order. And Absolutely. We, Lena, of course, Lena's and Shalada, you can expand a little bit how Lena is really working to, to make sure that we can have SNAP beneficiaries involved. In other words, the most vulnerable who have the least technology and who have the yeah. least but have the worst it outcomes. So right. doc, why don't you talk a little bit about how our food and the education about our food. Uh, for example, I have a very close friend who has diabetes. You would think grapes are healthy. You know, it's, oh, it's grapes. Yeah, exactly. Sugar bomb. Sugar bomb. Yeah. But, see, but see, as a person who does not have diabetes, I wouldn't understand that. I would think yeah. certain fruits are, you know, the fruit cocktail. Hey man, that's, mm -hmm. it's fruit. But those things are really not good for, for diabetics. So talk a little bit about how we can educate not only the patient, but yeah. educate ourselves about food access and lack of food access for certain communities and how we can improve those outcomes. Yeah. So I think um, in terms of food access, I think, you know, the companies want us to think that gluten-free organic is the only thing that will keep you healthy. But the truth of the matter is educating yourself about nutrition is the most, is the thing that's going to keep you healthy. And you can do a lot with less money if you know what to look for. So learning how to read a nutrition fact label is everything, mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And if you have technology, if you have a smartphone, downloading it, some type of software or an app that can help you further understand what to choose mm -hmm. is incredibly important, period, end of story. Because most of us are a bit lazy, right? And we don't, you want to go to the grocery store and you want to buy your food. You don't want to be there for two hours trying to read every label. So having technology to help you with that is incredibly useful, but it doesn't have to be organic. It certainly doesn't have to be gluten-free. It just has to be low carb, right? And one of the things that people forget, I remember growing up, you'd go in the grocery store, there was raw stuff and there was frozen stuff 
and there was a few things in the frozen section that were cooked that didn't really taste that good. Frozen foods, particularly vegetables, can be incredibly good for you, okay? Um, you can eat foods out of a can that are reasonably good if you know how to prepare them well. You can eat reasonable meats that are healthy for diabetes if they're not covered in flour and fried, right? So there are some simple things you can do. There are better fruits than others, um, but most of us need to have education around what to look for and what to buy. And it takes time and it takes effort and it's not easy, but once people learn it and it becomes a part of their lifestyle, um, then they'll never forget it. Dr. Bash, let's go to the box reading, okay? And yeah. I, I think I'm a fairly educated guy, I have two college degrees, but I swear to goodness, when I look at the box, I'm like, what the heck is, you know, blah, 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 you know? Yeah. So for me, for me as a heart patient, it's the sodium. And I think right. at, to Shalada's point, a lot of our food ha has marketing attached to it. That's just right. like medicines are being marketed. And for example, I went to into a, a popular big box store. I won't call off the name of Walmart, but I'm looking <laughs> at different chicken broths and the one that said low sodium. So I said, okay. So I compared that to, you know, the other one that wasn't low and the one that was low sodium by the label had the same amount of sodium as the other right. one. Right. So I think, right. I think our, the education of the consumer in, in terms of what is corn syrup, versus yep. this and versus that. Uh, and I'll bring a personal uh, part to this. My grandson, you know, my wife and I kept telling my son and my daughter-in-law, listen, you know, it's easy to give the kids the little juicy juices, Char. Uh, and I know you have grandkids and, and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Until her doctor told her, you know, the kid needs to drink more water. And we bought him a little little Happy Meal once and they had the apple juice in it. And that kid went after that, like, oh my God, juice. <laughs> you know, I get, yeah. I get something like that, something fun. But Talk a little bit about how it's important to, for people to understand the back of those labels and how Lena and other programs, Shalada, can really help them get past that. Yeah, I, I tell people, forget the pictures, forget all of the garbage on the front that tries to catch your attention, and also be aware of the end of the aisles and areas where they like to entice you with the garbage food like chips and salsa and dip and cookies and turn directly to the nutrition facts label because that's where the information is. That's where the companies by law cannot lie to you about what's in that box or in that can or in that jar, okay? And if you can't know or understand how to do it, then download an app like Lena, download an app, other apps where you can actually scan the barcodes and it'll tell you if it's a good or a bad choice for you. Okay, and acknowledge, I think people need to acknowledge what they need. If you know, be just be, be real and be honest. If you know that you're not gonna read the label and you're gonna be lazy about it, or if you know that you don't really understand it, then find the tool that's going to help you tear down that barrier. The barrier of not feeling like doing it, the barrier of not understanding how to do it, and if you don't have technology, then get a friend or a family member to help you, okay? But you, but it's, but you have to do the work. COVID is making us prepare more scratch, uh, as we used to say, uh, from scratch. Now, people are trying yeah. more things in terms of their own food prep. How, Shalada, and, and I know that you're a semi-chef and your sister's a chef, 
How are home-cooked meals, are they better, Dr. Batch, if we prepare them ourselves, you know, versus uh, the processed food, as my wife calls it. Stop bringing all that processed stuff home. But, um, and you know, like fresh versus canned. You know, for me, it's, it's always fresh because there's so much sodium. But there's yeah. also a lot of sugars in things. How much better can we do, ladies, in preparing home-cooked meals mm-hmm. as opposed to just add water, put in microwave three minutes, and yeah. it's done? Charlotte, I'll let you speak to that first. Home-cooked meals are by far, you know what's in it type of thing. Yeah. What we do with the customized recipes that we give out, we have all of that uh, information on all the ingredients that are in there. And we utilize artificial intelligence as well as the values that are provided through the USDA database. We also utilize glycemic index databases. So we utilize a number of different technologies to cross-reference a lot of those um, recipes that are in there to, start to give you a highlight of what's red, yellow, and green. So, you know, if you've got a really high uh, blood sugar, you got to look, look for something that's really low in, in glycemic index right. and vice versa. If you, you know, if your blood sugars are like two or three, you're going to have to eat something fairly quickly to kind of balance you out a little bit. So yeah. we, we definitely for the home cooked meals or the ones that we recommend uh, utilize the, the, you know, the labeling information, USDA, glycemic index values, we utilize all of that to really make that customized recommendation for you. So Cooking at home yeah. is a lot better. You don't know what the chef at, you know, some rest of your favorite restaurants putting yep. there, how much sugar, how much salt, how much oil, how much grease, how much butter. You have no idea. So uh, we are going to try to work on that piece of it because uh, we do take a baseline information on some of the restaurant items and the ones that we know that have a baseline that we can compare to our database will give you you know, um, a sample of what it should be if it's not ladle and butter and everything else. Uh, so like a chicken salad or something like that, we'll be able to give you that information without you pouring in two cups of, um, of dressing on it. So those are some of the things that we can help you with uh, to kind of make those choices because you're tired or you're, you know, just don't feel like dealing with it. So definitely. Yeah. Um, Dr. Batch, that's that's really our strategy, and 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 it's coming from a place of, you know, what what top endocrinologists are always saying, you know, nutrition, exercise, and coaching, and that's really that's right. Or certain sugars, and and I, I'm very very cautious of marketing. Uh, for example, uh, you know, they'll say, oh, this is raw sugar uh, versus regular white sugar, or use of honey. I found honey is very uh, is a is a serious sweetener. I mean, sometimes it's sweeter than sugar. Now, are those things? This is my blood sugar straight to the moon. So I, right. I yeah, I I think sugar is sugar is sugar. Yeah. You know, I if see. you if you whatever people have, you know, knock down drag outs about this honey versus, you know, raw sugar, white sugar. Um, it's all sugar. Yeah. So you know the focus should be on trying to reduce the amount of all of those, you know, in your diet, use them sparingly. And what about things like brown rice versus uh, regular rice? You know, is it the same or, and then now, Char, we have the cauliflower rice. Mm -hmm. So are all these things that, and I think to to a certain extent, consumers get confused, you know, about this versus that. So talk a little bit about how these labels of healthier or, and not necessarily the organic stuff, you know, that that's that's in and of itself a different discussion. 
but how are different aspects of products that are labeled as, uh, I know here in Louisiana, for example, uh, they can't label cauliflower rice as rice because they say it's not. Of course, we eat a lot of rice here in Louisiana. So talk a little bit about how some of these named categories of foods could affect it and affect how uh, glycemic index and and all the rest of the things that we do. Again, I go back to nutrition education. If you know how to read a label, it doesn't matter what they call it Mm -hmm. because you're going to look on the back and you're going to see cauliflower rice is not rice. It's cauliflower. It's going to have less carb, right? And brown rice theoretically is better because it has more fiber, but it's still rice and it's still going to raise your blood sugar. So, you know, if you know the grams of carbohydrate that are in a food, you can make a better choice of what you want your side to be with your meat or your vegetable. And if you use a technology like Lena or others that give you, make it even easier because they give you a green, yellow, red zone, then you can really make a better and a healthier choice. But you don't need anybody to give you false advertising or any advertising or any information on food other than what's in a nutrition facts label. On the nutrition facts labels, and, and this is why I always get kind of like, okay, what do you mean? Uh, the, you know, the serving size, of course, and portion size are entirely different. And yeah. it's like, okay, you can have two tablespoons and this equals so much sodium or two yeah. tablespoons. You know, and you're, you're looking at it like, okay, uh, who eats like that? So. Yeah. You, you know, how do we how do we get into the good measure of food uh, in terms of our intake of, of carbohydrates? And, and it could be, a, like you said, some foods are carbohydrate dense. So right. you thinking, oh, OK, I'm just going to a, a little bit of, uh, of this or that. But it could really send your carbs way through the roof. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, you've hit upon serving size. And I think that's incredibly um, important. I think we have to readjust what we understand to be um, normal portion size in this country. You know, people have to eat less. Eat less and eat well. Well, Dr. Batch, it has been an enormous education session and we're uh, we're glad to have you on and hopefully we'll get to have you back again later on in some of our other shows and and some of our panel discussions, which we're planning a little bit later. You've been listening to and you've been watching Don't Eat Yourself to Death with our leader, Shalada Carter of Lena, uh, I'm Rinaldi Jacobs, and Dr. Brian Batch. 